Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. We saw last week how on the road to Damascus, Saul was converted from a very angry young man to now a very humbled man, blinded by the power and glory of Jesus Christ. Now he sits in a room waiting and praying for a perfect plan to be put in place. Let's join Pastor Jason now as he continues in the book of Acts, this part 34, in a sermon he's entitled, The Perfect Plan. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, and today Jason is looking at verses 10 through 19. Here's Jason. Well, welcome. Good morning, everyone. And you guys just weren't blessed like I was. We have a a new arrival, new little waver, Waverly. <laughs> sort of nailed it, kind of was a little shaky there. Wait, wavy? Wait, no, I think it's Waverly. And a nice, awesome little blessing, a bundle of joy that, that the Lord blessed Bree and, and Adam with. How old is she? Two weeks. Awesome. Well, praise the Lord for new life, for our Heavenly Father, who is a good, good Father, is He not? I am Pastor Jason, and we are continuing our walk through the book of Acts, watching Christ at work. So please turn with me to Acts chapter 9. We are continuing our look at the salvation story, the salvation account of Saul. And today what we are going to see is what, what I've entitled the perfect plan. Now, I, I'm sure you are like me. You have seen in the past plans presented that really were not a perfect plan. They weren't even a good plan. They weren't even a mild. They were just a downright terrible plan. And when we lived in Papua New Guinea, I saw several of these plans. But, but one of these plans that I remember vividly is this little boy who is starving and he comes to my house. He's talking about how hungry he is. And he says, okay, Jason, can, can I go up your coconut tree and get a coconut? And I was like, well, okay, yes, but remember there's fire ant, ants on that there coconut tree. And he said, oh, it's okay. I know how to handle fire ants. I'll just get up there so quick. They won't bother me. They won't bite me. They won't do anything. So he shimmies up about a third of the way of the coconut tree. And I see him going like this. He goes another two feet comes down, runs to the river, jumps in the river, comes back, and he's like, I'm going to do it this time. This time he goes up about halfway, same thing, comes down, runs to the river, gets all these ants off of him, comes back for try number three, and guess what? He didn't make it. And he comes down, and and he just gives up, and he goes back up to the village dejected. I think I might have given him a biscuit or something. The repercussions of, of that plan failing wasn't very big. Just a couple little ant bites. Something that my mom told me about when I was a, a, quite a small boy, I think maybe fourth or fifth grade when we were living in Torrance. She had gone to a New Year's Eve party and she was recanting what she saw that, that night on her way home. And she comes to a, a car, a, a Volkswagen bug that had been flipped over on its, on its edge. And there are two men out all bloody because the glass had broken. And, 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 and these two guys, they, they were obviously drunk and not thinking too well. 
they were trying to push the car back on end. But they weren't doing this together. One guy was pushing the one side while the other guy is standing underneath ready to catch it. And he's going to level the car down nice and gently so that it doesn't break any more of the tires or cause more damage to the car. So so my mom tells him, what are you doing? You're going to get pummeled. You're going to get squashed by this car. And they're just like, lady, leave us alone. Obviously, that was not a good plan. And oftentimes when we're thinking about men, we, we see that, that their plans, because it's men, can, can often be flawed. But when we see the plan of God, it's nothing like that. Because God's plans are perfect just as He is perfect. And even though His plan may not make sense at times, it always works out in the end. Why? Because He is in control of all things. And he can do things in a way that doesn't make any sense to us, but in the end accomplishes his purposes. We, we could go back to, to Judges chapter 7. And, and we could look at Gideon. And we could see him in this, in this battle against the Midianites. And, and remember, he starts off with 20,000. Soldiers and the, and the Lord says, no, that's still too many, because if you have that many people, Everyone will think that it was the soldiers that did this. That it wasn't me. So no, let's, let's cut that down. And, and remember, those who are fearful, they, they, they leave. And then it cuts down to 10,000. And still the Lord says, no, that's not enough. And just as they would have done in Siawi, He says, hey, come to this stream and I want everybody to drink. And those that lap the water up into their mouths, those are the ones that will stay. And those that didn't, they will leave. And how many leave? 9,700 out of the 10,000, leaving only 300. And yet we know that, that God did a miraculous thing through those 300 and the Midianites were conquered. Or how about the, the walls of Jericho with Joshua in, in Joshua 6? Does that make any sense? Instead of some military defeat, what do they do? The Lord tells them, okay, I want you to go and I want you to circle this city with all of its walls, with, with all of your soldiers, but you can't say a thing. In fact, all you're going to do is for six days, you're going to go around at one time and you're going to blow your horns. That's what the priests are going to do. And then it gets even crazier on the seventh day. says, okay, you're not just going to do that. This time you're going to go around the city seven times. And just as always is the case in any military cam- campaign, when you go around that seven times and, and you blow the trumpets and everybody screams, what will happen? the walls will fall down and you guys will defeat them. Does that make any sense? No, it makes absolutely no sense. And yet, what was God doing? God was expanding their faith. He was strengthening their faith. He was showing them how great He is, how strong He is, and how He needs to be trusted, which is exactly what we're going to see today. As we look at chapter 9, and and with this amazing account, of the Lord's plan, the Lord's perfect plan, and how this perfect plan is presented. So, so look at Acts chapter 9, verses 10 to 19, the first half of 19. And follow along as I read out loud. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your immeasurable grace, for your wonderful Holy Spirit that you have given to us that believe in you, and for your word. We pray that you would now speak to us through your word, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to make your word clear, that you would indeed write your word upon our hearts, that our view, our understanding of you would grow greater and greater, that we might serve you and give you glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, what we're going to see this morning is, is, is really the, the perfect plan that the Lord has for Saul. But I'm going to say it's not just for Saul. It also includes Ananias. And we're going to see how that plan is presented. And we see that basically in a, in, in a sequence and kind of a chronological order as this plan unfolds. First, we're going to see the plan revealed clearly in verses 10 to 12. Then we're going to see how, how the plan is questioned. Verses 13 to 16, revealing to us just how normal this Ananias man is. And finally, we're going to see that the plan is followed. And that is seen in, in verses 17 to 19. But where he starts first is how he reveals his plan to Ananias. And in that, what he, what he is doing is he is testing the faith of Ananias. Look at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So last week we left Saul off in this, in this state physically that was really a, not such a great state, right? He's blind. But spiritually, he's in a better place than he's ever been. Why? Because he's fasting and he's spending time with the Lord. And, and, and now the focus goes off of, of Saul and it, and it goes on to Ananias. And if you're like me, you think that's, that's what this story is all about. That's, that's what these verses are, are pointing to. E- either it's, it's all about Saul and what the Lord is doing in his life and what he's going to do in him as his chosen vessel, or this is all about Ananias. And, and I would say yes, but they are not the main characters. The main character as we've been seeing in the book of Acts, is the Lord Jesus. And we see Him being highlighted again and again just by the sheer number of the times that we see this word Lord referring to Jesus Christ. We see that five times here. He is the one doing the speaking. He is the one that usually has the last word. He is the one empowering Ananias to allow Saul to have his eyes opened, to have the Spirit filling him to have him welcomed into the 
the body of Christ, the church of Christ that was meeting here in Damascus. And what we see here is that, that this man, Ananias, that this is a name that we've heard before, right? Way back in Acts chapter 5. But we see this is an entirely different Ananias. And we're going to see this in Acts chapter 22 as the Apostle Paul describes this man, Ananias. He isn't like the man in chapter 5 who had plotted against the Holy Spirit, lied, and then fell dead in front of everyone. This Ananias is a man who walks with the Lord. It's said in Acts 22 verse 12 that that he is a devout observer of the law. He, He is a man of the Word of God. Not only that, he is a man who is highly respected by everyone in Damascus. In fact, some commentators believe that not only is he highly respected, but he possibly was the leader of Christ's church in Damascus. And if that was the case, do you know who would have been on the top three list for Saul in coming to, in coming to Damascus? Who he was going to go after first? No doubt this Ananias could have been very high up on his list which adds even more to the interaction that happens. And so we see that, that the Lord comes to him differently than he came to Saul. When he came to Saul, he, he came to him in all of his glory with the, with the blinding light and showed himself to him. But with Ananias, he comes to him with this vision. And we have to ask ourselves, well, well Pastor Jason, what is a vision? Well, it's just that. It's, it's, it's where God grants a vision Someone receives a vision from the Lord in order to understand what the Lord is going to communicate, is going to say to that particular person. And no doubt you might be asking yourself, well, what about visions today? Do do we still have these visions today that we see here in the in the book of Acts? And is this something that 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 is mirrored today in all of our churches and and and? And would you say, oh, yes, yes, we have many visions. Well, before you answer that question too quickly, I want us to consider what is behind a vision? What was the whole purpose? Is it just some sort of visual representation of of God? No. What it is, is it's really about revelation. It's about God revealing Himself. And in the Old Testament, He did that many, many times. And in the book of Acts, we're going to see that this happens. Even now, this, this happens actually twice. It's, it's, it's kind of a double vision. As one vision happens to Ananias and another vision actually comes to Saul. So another way that we could phrase that question, does God still speak in visions today? Does God still reveal Himself today in new ways would be, is the canon of Scripture closed? Or is God still revealing new truth? That we need to step outside of God's Word in order to grasp, to, to understand. And I would say it's clear from God's Word that that is not the case. That, that God's Word and the canon of Scripture as we know it is complete. It's done. It can't be added to as, as the book of Revelation lets us know. And if you're not familiar with the canon, in, in case you think this is just some sort of committee of men, some sort of council back in some other time where they got together and said, okay, yeah, the book of James, well, Luther didn't like it, but no, we're going to count it God's word. And oh, Genesis, Exodus, well, that's been around so long. Let's just include that, but let's not include this and let's not include that. 
No, no, it, it, it wasn't men deciding what is going to be in the canon. It, it's the idea that God had already decided, predetermined which books in the Bible are indeed revealed by Him and as such, totally inerrant and inspired, given by Him. And so really when we're talking about the canon, we're, we're talking three things. One, it had to be written by a prophet or an apostle, or in the case of like Mark, it had to be written by somebody who was somehow associated with an apostle or a prophet. Number two, it had to be consistent with what God's Word had already taught. So it couldn't introduce some new truth that went against what God's Word had already said. And then finally, from a historical vantage point, the church or the believing nation of Israel had to attest to it as something that came from God. And in all of that, we can have complete certainty that what we hold in our hands is a complete canon. That this is God's Word revealed to us. And that when somebody categorically today says, oh, I've received a vision or I've received a word from the Lord, they're saying that God still grants new revelation today. But this isn't what Scripture teaches. God's Word says that He's given us all that we need, right? We could go to several scriptures, but 2 Timothy 2, 3, 16, we're all familiar with it. It, it says all scripture is what? God breathed. Not just part of scripture and then, and then some other scripture is going to come around later. No, all scripture is God breathed. Not that God breathed his truth into the words of the authors and then somehow mixed his words with theirs. So it's a conglomeration of the authors and God. No, it's all God's words. It's not some sort of paraphrase to where he'd give them a thought and then they'd try to just go ahead and, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tweak it here and tweak. No, it's exactly what God intended for his word and that's what they wrote with their own personalities in their language, but it is God's word. That's the only way that God's word can remain inerrant without any error. And, and believing that, that today that, that Lord can speak through Visions just opens up a church in, in, into all sorts of troubling practices, in, in, into something that, that I would say it's on the verge of theological chaos and practical chaos. Why? Because then anyone can claim to be speaking God's revelation. And almost anything can be passed off as being divinely revealed truth. And what we need to do is we need to come back to God's Word and, says, okay, and say, okay, yes, but what does God's Word say about this particular issue? And the fact that he doesn't just approach him with a vision, but he actually continues to say things to him reveals to us that the meaning behind a vision was to communicate truth. And that truth had to be consistent with what God's word is saying. And so many visions today, it's not consistent with what God's word says. Look at what Jesus says in 11 and 12. And the Lord, the Lord Jesus said to him, Ananias, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Isn't it amazing the detail that Jesus gives to Ananias about this vision? He doesn't just tell him to randomly go someplace and on some corner... 
you'll see this or that. No, he tells him, I want you to go to this particular street and you're going to see this particular man who owns this house. Then you're going to go in and and this man that you're going to see, he gives him his exact name. He is Saul. He tells him where he's from. Only someone who possesses all knowledge could say something like this and predict it and be right on. And, And that's what we see here. And the first thing he says is, go to the street called Straight. Do you know why they called that street straight? Because it was straight. Like an arrow. Incidentally, we used to live on a, up in the mountains, and we didn't know this, but one of the streets that we'd have to get to our camp when we lived there was a street called Glass. I'll just let you know when the winter came, we understood why that street was called Glass. It was just a sheet of glass that was crazy to go up and down. Well, the meaning for this street being called straight was because it was straight. And today the street is still there. And it goes from one, from the east side of, of Damascus to the west side. But I wonder if there's more to the meaning than just that. Why? Because Saul is finding out for the first time that he thought that he was straight, that he was, and that could be a term used to mean righteous. That he thought indeed he was righteous. That he thought he was righteous because of all the things that he did. Because of all the ways that he was such a above board Pharisee. That he was a follower of the law to that tenth degree. That he prayed the right prayers and he did this and he did that. But now what he finds here in this house after meeting the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, is that the only way for him to be righteous is to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. Not by his own merit, not by his own works. And so really for the first time, he is on the right street. And up to this point, he has been on the wrong street. And then we're given even more about what is going on. That this man Saul is praying. And in the Greek It's actually more than that. It's not the idea that right when he receives this vision, he happened to be praying. That five-minute little chunk where, where the Lord appeared to him. No, the idea in the Greek is that he had been continuously praying since the day that he was blinded. So now for three days he had been praying. Is that significant? Yes, it's significant because it reveals to us that this is the the heart of a believer, that we should want to pray. And yet we have to consider, had Saul not prayed before? Oh, many, many, many times. He he was a devout Pharisee. But we have to understand that, that he was praying from a different heart. He wasn't praying to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was praying through his Pharisaical grid, through that kind of formula that that he'd been raised since he was little. Okay, this is what you do. And this is what earns God's favor. Now he's coming by grace before the throne, recognizing that Jesus is his mediator. As the word of God so accurately portrays throughout Scripture. And notice too what the Lord doesn't tell Ananias. Of all the things that he does tell him, and, he, and he's very detailed, the one thing that I would want to hear is this. Oh yes, and Ananias, don't worry about this guy. He's not what he used to be. Yes, yes, before he was a bad guy. Now he's a good guy. Before he's on the other side, now he's on our side. He's going to become the greatest missionary ever for my name, for my sake. But he doesn't say that. Why? Because he's stretching his faith 
He's trying to grow Ananias in this. And as we think about this and we think of all that that Jesus is telling him here, it, it seems almost impossible that he would know that. But remember, this is God. So for him, this isn't difficult. But for Ananias to grasp what is being communicated, it's very difficult. And as a result, look at what he does. He, he questions the plan altogether. Look at verses 13 and 14. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Is he fearful? Does he have justifiable grounds for being fearful? Yes, he does. Where did he hear all of this from? At some point, the news has carried of what was happening to Jerusalem and now that this man was actually coming. And so what does he do? He's fearful. And in essence, what he's doing is he's saying, okay, hold on, time out. Lord, are you sure about this? Let me remind you who this man is. It's almost as if he's trying to convince and tell Jesus something that possibly Jesus doesn't know. And, and, and if you're like me, you can relate. At, at times we find ourselves trapped in a situation where we're, we're like, well, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> did, did you forget, Lord? And, and he's, no, I, I didn't forget. I know your situation completely. I am with you. And that, and that's what he's gonna, gonna do with Ananias. And no doubt that this news came from, possibly, from believers that were in Jerusalem that had been pushed out of Jerusalem, came to Damascus, and what did they do? They told everyone there about this terrible man Saul and how now this man Saul is coming. But look at how Jesus responds in in verses 15 to 16. But the Lord said to him, Go. Very simply, It's a command. He doesn't get a choice in the matter. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I also think it's interesting that we never see Ananias say that part about all the suffering that Saul is going to do for Jesus' name's sake. He skips that part. Why? Because the Lord told him that he would let Saul know, and he does. And we know from Corinthians chapter 11 exactly what this means for Saul and what he is going to come up against. And yet the Lord has plans for him. This this word instrument can can also be translated as a vessel. And and in the Greek, it, it gives it this idea of this special quality which God Himself has selected for this particular vessel who is now to function in a certain role that He's to perform. So Christ has chosen Him to be His special vessel. Notice here, it isn't Saul that's chosen this. It isn't Ananias. It is the Lord. And that is what the Lord does. And and everyone who is called into full-time ministry, whether you're a missionary or a pastor, that's what the Lord does. And He's called us all into fellowship with Him. And recognize too here, isn't it interesting that when He says He's going to suffer, He doesn't say He's going to suffer 
because of all the bad things that he has done to Christians. He's going to suffer. Oh, yeah, that's what it says. That he's going to suffer for killing Stephen in verse 16 at the end. No, it doesn't say that at all. It says he's going to suffer for my name's sake. He's going to suffer because he is going to promote me. Because he is going to exalt my name. Because he is going to preach my name. And then as a result, he is going to suffer. I would think at this point, this has to be at least somewhat encouraging for Ananias to to recognize that that the Lord has this and that none of this has surprised him. And so then we see that, that even though he's fearful, we see that, that he follows the plan. He's faithful. In, in spite of, of him being so fearful. Look at verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I think perhaps one of the most impactful and powerful words and anything that we've seen up to the, in the book of Acts up to this point is presented by the way that Ananias speaks to Saul here. Can, can you guess what, what is so powerful about what Saul, what Ananias says to Saul? Or literally how he calls Saul? Do you, do you see what the first word is? Brother Saul. Do you understand how significant that is? This was, this is a guy who was just murdering Christians. Several days before this, if anybody should not be counted as a brother, it's him. And yet the Greek word is the one from the same mother. That's what he is saying. We're we're talking about the brotherhood, the fellowship that we've seen in the book of Acts. He is welcomed with open arms right into that. And I would think at this point, as as Saul hears this, that that his, his response has got to be one of complete joy. And perhaps astonishment over the fact that, that, that he is being welcomed. And although it's Ananias who uttered the words, it, it's Christ who's doing the commissioning. It's the hands of Ananias that touched Saul, but, but it was the power of Christ that we're going to see does this amazing thing. Look at verses 18 and 19. And I'll close with this. And immediately... There fell from his eyes something like scales. That, that's like the, the Greek word for fish scales. And he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. So we see the response of the Lord is immediate. It happens right away. And this is the Lord doing this. This is not Ananias. He doesn't have the power to do this. And everything that Saul experienced earlier in chapter 9 that we saw has been totally reversed, right? Right? He, he was blind, now he can see. He, he was in not eating or drinking, now he is eating and drinking. He, he takes a step forward in obedience and baptism. But we also see that he was already saved, so we know that conversion happens before baptism. That this is a, a step of obedience of a believer. But not only is he, is he identifying himself with Christ, he's identifying himself with all the believers in Damascus. And in essence, what he's doing is, is he's welcoming himself into their fold. And then finally, in, in, in the last verse, we, we see something very significant. That, that not only does, does Ananias put, put his hand upon him, 
Not only does he call him brother, but then he actually loves him in a very physical way. By doing what? By sharing food with him. And no doubt that strengthened him physically, but I am sure that it strengthened him spiritually as well. So we see that that someone that that is indeed a believer and has been changed, they, they have a desire to pray to the Lord just as Saul does. And we also see he has a desire to be around believers. To be plugged into fellowship. And, and that's what that sharing food with one another is, is referring to. Just as we do with our community groups. Please, if you are still not plugged into a community group, there is room. And if 35 of you sign up, well then we'll start another one. And you can sign up out in the hub. That This is the, the Lord's plan for Christian fellowship. But, but think about the man that the Lord used in the life of Saul. Was he a super apostle? Was he a super Christian? Was he a, a, a super teacher? We, we, we really know nothing about him. And I believe that's on purpose. That's to let us know that the Lord uses ordinary and normal people to accomplish extraordinary and incredibly perfect things through His work. Why? Because Christ's plan is perfect in the way that it works out, even though we may not understand it at all. He wants to use us in each other's lives just as He uses Ananias here. So let me close with with two points to ponder. Two things for us all to consider this week. I encourage you to go back over this passage and look at it over and over again. Consider, number one, how Ananias becomes the means by which Christ accomplishes His work in Saul. Christ used a fellow believer to give sight back to a blind man and to welcome him into Christ's church. No doubt that, that most likely the Lord isn't going to use us for something to that significant as far as physically goes. But spiritually, that you could be an encouragement to someone by, by welcoming, welcoming them here at RBC, inviting them out to lunch or just spending some time with someone what that could do to someone spiritually and encourage them. And we don't know what the Lord can do. Number two, consider consider how Saul prays during his three days of blindness. Christ doesn't command Saul to do this. We don't, we don't see that anywhere. This is just a natural response as a believer and one that is seen practiced throughout the life of Paul. We'll see, you see this in all of his epistles. My question for you and for myself as I've been thinking about this all week, is how natural is prayer to me? Is, is this my first response when something comes? Or do I naturally just think, oh, I'm going to just solve this like this? We need to ask the Lord to, to make prayer a more natural response and part of our life. Let me close our time. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for, for this depiction of how you communicated with with Saul and how you communicated with Ananias, how you used Ananias in Saul's life. We pray that, that you would help us to see areas where we can be used by you in others' lives so that you might receive glory, that we might represent you accurately and be a body that is interconnected and growing in grace and the knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. 
It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.